Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Alison Rudd of the Times. Who knew defending the Premier League title is difficult? No one has done so since Manchester United in 2009. Lack of intensity takes hold. Egos get in the way. Complacency corrupts. It's a big week for Manchester City. A trip to Everton on Wednesday, followed by a home game against Chelsea. They got the right stuff, Johnny? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in the intro, as you said, Mike, that defending the Premier League is difficult. And we know statistically, historically, that it's not not been done very often. And the reasons for that, you do have to do two things. I think you have to maintain the edge or the intensity or whatever it was that, that got you there in the first place. But you also have to offer something a little bit new. And Manchester City, to me, have impressed at times, impressed enormously against Arsenal. But then that came on the back of a slightly different performance, a very sort of staid performance against Newcastle. And I don't detect in them quite the same edge and intensity, physical intensity, particularly when trying to win the ball back that they had last season. Not quite as sharp in creating chances. But I don't think Guardiola's offered much new this season um, he's sort of refined plan A, but it's the same players. He's gone back to the same players in particular in this sort of time where he needs results. And I think their patterns of play are quite predictable. Um, but the bigger context, I suppose, is all of those things are still pretty powerful and they may win the league. It's just if they do, I think they've lacked what they had last season um, ever so slightly. And we're entering the, the stage of this season where you know the resumption of the Champions League that in itself is a huge distraction if, as we all probably assume, the Champions League is a really strategic target for City as a club and an institution. I think, I think we forget how much pressure is on Pep Guardiola and his players to win the Champions League from the owners, actually. That's the, the ruby in the crown that they really, really want. It's, it's not just a domestic trophy. The Premier League's domestic. The Champions League speaks of something of domination, and it's the show that everyone tunes into and it pits clubs with history and clubs with wealth against each other. And it's something I think the owners really, really want. Now, I don't know to what degree the desperation to win the Champions League permeates through to the players to the point that it might affect their performances in the league. I mean, there's been suggestions that maybe the players are slightly bored of what the Premier League has to offer them and they're saving themselves for lifting themselves for 
for European competition. I find that hard to process and believe, but certainly I would expect the slight staleness that Jonathan's mm. talked about will evaporate when they get back mm. into your competition and they will be at their absolute supreme peak. And it's interesting how you described City when they were at Newcastle. To me, you say, talked about refining Plan A. Mm. I think they refined it almost to the point where it was invisible against yeah. Newcastle because there was nothing else to offer and they mm. almost stopped moving mm. because they'd reached the point where Plan A could go nowhere else. Yeah. And so they stopped. Mm. It, yeah. That was fascinating, yeah, I thought. Right. Yeah. So when you reach that point, you know, all managers are pragmatists at heart. Do you see signs of Pep Guardiola honing it right down now? Yes. If you look at it, he's... We know the, the bulk of it is about possession football and it's about pitch occupation. So that, that, you know, that's a general philosophy. But within that, for example, there's, there's a particular goal that Pep Guardiola loves to score. Um, Rory Smith was writing about it today. You know, it's a, it's a low ball across the box, tapping at the far post from what he'd call the last touch man. Now, as Ali says, that City were going for that type of goal all the time against Newcastle and Rafa Benitez knew exactly what they were going to try and do just kept his block of defenders in the middle. And when they couldn't score that, they had nowhere else to go. When, if you look at his recruitment, he's recruited Mares to back up the wingers, but he doesn't offer anything particularly different. He's got Bernardo Silva because he's really like David Silva. His fullbacks don't, for me, attack the way they did last year, which is perhaps a little bit of conservatism creeping in on his part. I, I, I'm not gonna, I don't want to go down the route of saying that he should have a plan other than the superb football philosophy that's won him so many titles. Because we are nitpicking, aren't we? We are nitpicking, and I feel I'm nitpicking. And he's, his methods have, have, have been historically successful. They'll leave a mark on football. But within all of that, I think that they are lacking that little element that's different. Maris, perhaps, I think has been a very good player for them, but he, he maybe doesn't have the leadership that he's going to come in and really challenge and try and win his place and do something different to impress. Maybe that we're also looking past the fact that Kevin De Bruyne hasn't had the same season mm. and he was the match winner in, in so many games this year. But they've lost three games, Newcastle, Leicester, Crystal Palace, all against very experienced coaches who have seen them coming, put a low block, I know Graham Soonis wouldn't like that, but put <laughs> a low block against them and said, come on, create some chances, we know what you're going to do, and, and they haven't been able to. It's nitpicking they might win the league, but if they were 10 out of 10 last year, they'd be 9 out of 10 this year. Because mm, there are some players that we become accustomed to their, their excellence, and I think Aguero is probably in that category. You can talk about numbers, I mean, 14 hat-tricks now. At 30 years old, has he got a claim now to be probably the best goal scorer of the Premier League era? Well, statistically, you can't ignore it, can mm. you? Um, he's, he's an interesting one because he's never, ever in the running, it seems, to win any accolades, mm. any of the formal accolades come the end of the season, mm. which might just be bad luck and there's someone just shinier and more sparkly that comes along in the seasons he does particularly well. And maybe we take him for granted because he is so consistent. I think there are various other factors as well with Aguero. It's partly that we know what you're going to get from him. His manager knows what he's going to get from him. His teammate knows what they're going to get from him. So he doesn't actually surprise you. So I can't think of how many players I watch and they score a hat-trick and it doesn't register as mm. something special or mm. doesn't wow me, which isn't his fault at all. But I suspect I'm not the only one yeah. that just thinks, oh, it's another, yeah, Aguero is very good at that. When it's going well, he'll just, just knock it in. And 
he's so much a team player in that sense. It's as though Pep in particular picks him for the games where he sort of knows they're going to get the sort of chances that will fall to him. It doesn't feel like he's taken a game by the scruff of the neck mm. and won it. He's just providing the tap-in for the end product and nobody wins awards for doing that anymore. I think what's interesting about him is whenever I've asked a defender, Premier League defender, who's the hardest player to play against, they always say Aguero. It's not Harry Kane. Sometimes Drogba, if it's an older player, but it's nearly always Aguero. Because of what, the movement? Because of the movement, they talk about his low centre of gravity being incredibly hard to knock off the ball, but really explosive when moving past them and just having all the kind of the, the, the smarts, the intelligence to get on the end of those balls and, and tap them in. So I think he's maybe a player's player that we outside don't quite, because we don't appreciate the fineries of, of the striker's art as much as a pro would maybe don't quite understand how good he is. Mm. Are we also guilty of maybe overlooking the impact of Laporte? I think he's been fantastic for them in a, a sort of a, an unfantastic way if I can put it like that. <laughs> very understated but very very effective. He's so adaptable though he can yeah. play in any system he can play centre-back he can play in a three he can play in a four and then he can play as a full-back if needed he's I like understated players enormously, especially if you're a defender. It just means you're reading the game so well that you cut, you cut out mentally all the mistakes you might make and all the sort of last-ditch tackles that get a lot of attention sometimes if you're a defender and everyone says, well, that was, you know, it was a game-saving tackle. He doesn't need to make them because he's thought about it beforehand. So they're the really, truly good defenders. And his distribution isn't uh, spectacular, but again, it's economical. So I think he's been crucial to City clinging on and possibly winning the title. Yeah, mm. definitely. You were at Chelsea on Saturday where you know, the spotlight is obviously on Sarri. He's talking about give me more time, which is, as we all know, the commodity you can't buy in football, or certainly these days and certainly at Chelsea. What's the state of play politically with him at that football club at the moment? Well, I think he would have got the boot if they'd lost to Huddersfield. Hmm especially if anyone had watched the game and seen what Huddersfield <laughs> offered, they would have thought, well, this is a manager and we took a risk with him because he has a strong philosophy and I think Chelsea were in the mood for a, a, a strong philosophy. They wanted less, less winning it because we've got the players and more let's win it with a style. And I think Roman Abramovich has always sort of lusted after something that was Barcelona-like and you could argue that Sarri Ball at its best is a little bit like the way Barcelona play, a little bit. And I think that's what they thought they were buying. They were buying someone who was strong-willed, bringing in someone who was strong-willed and would impose a very distinct style on Chelsea so that when they won trophies, people would say, not only, oh, look, Chelsea won the trophy, but they won it in a particular style. That's what they were after. And so Sarri's come in with that philosophy. What they did not anticipate was that he would lose a game at the Emirates and then come out and say, the players are hard to motivate. And then go on and lose the next league game 4-0 to Bournemouth and question his own ability to motivate mm. them. This is, this is not part of the Chelsea model at all. So to answer your question, he was on thin ice. But strangely, I think the fact that he has not wavered one inch, it, having been on such thin ice and seen the team sort of reject Sarri Ball or not. Because in order for Sarri Ball to work, you need to give so much effort and believe in it as, as players. So if they, they waver slightly or get slightly bored of it or question it, it doesn't work. Really, I don't think Sarri cares whether he's sacked or not. What he cares most about is that he never is seen to waver from his principle, which is that you play a certain way, you play the way he knows, 
the way he's built his career on. And February, they've got so much happening in February. All their fixtures are vitally important, including um, an EFL Cup final. If he can get through February, Jorginho stays fit and manages to keep passing the ball and it works. And Higuain carries on with his one touch up front and making Hazard happy then he's safe, he's safe. But, I, you know, it's ironic. What's brought him to the brink will also save him. Because mm, there's a, always a delicate balance to be struck, isn't there, between that assertion of managerial mm. authority and a recognition of the political power of the players around him. Yeah, I mean, ma managers of... Yes, they should have a philosophy, but they have responsibilities as well. One is man management, is to manage a group and be pragmatic about that. And being pragmatic about that Chelsea group, what he did, the, the, that motivational ploy of telling them, you know, they're hard to motivate. He did it too early in the season for me. I don't think it was a real crisis. He did it after a performance that wasn't that bad. And he also did it apparently without knowing Chelsea's history because that dressing room doesn't respond to that. We've seen it before. So I just thought that was a management mistake. And I think it's been a management mistake not to solve some of the on-field problems. No one's saying he should get rid of Sarri ball, but surely when is getting caught time after time in possession, he's getting smothered and your game plan doesn't work as a result, surely you've got to do something to adjust. So I'd love it to succeed. I really like the guy, but I've been disappointed in his last month, let's say, that some of the management things he's, he's done. And it isn't all player's fault, player power. He's got responsibilities as well and he hasn't performed very well with them. Mm. What's the mood music? Ali around uh, Hazard. He had that link-up, natural link-up against Huddersfield on Saturday, Higuain scoring twice. But frankly, it's Huddersfield. Mm. Oh, well, absolutely. Mood music is a nice phrase for Hazard, isn't it? Because he does seem to decide when he's going to play and not play. I interviewed Hazard early in the season when Saribol looked like it had been an instant hit, actually. And, he, and Hazard said, I like it. I like everything going through the pivot of Jorginho because it means I touch the ball 90 times in a game where I might only touch it 30. Mm. If I know I'm going to touch the ball more, it means I can experiment, I can take risks mm. because I know I'm going to get the ball again if something doesn't work. And that would, I think, be the ultimate expression of Sorry Ball if it allows the creative yeah. players to feel that freedom to express themselves. And when Hazard is in the mood, that's what makes Chelsea the team you want to watch because Hazard's phenomenal on when the mood music suits him. So all it, clearly all it takes is for Hazard to think, oh, I'm not seeing the ball where I want to see it or I'm not seeing it as often as I thought I might. And he gets a bit, or well, pouty's a bit pejorative. <laughs> but I mean, he, it looks like he is sulking a little bit. And I don't know, I mean, I, that's hard as a manager really, isn't it? Because you know he can do it when he wants to do it. Also, I don't, you know, Hazard is completely immune to rumours about his future. He will do what he wants mm. to do. He just doesn't seem to care what people say about him, his performances. He sort of has an inner belief that if he likes the way the game's going, he will mm. give us something beautiful and that's all that matters. He was probably playing wide when you spoke to him though, wasn't he? So he's probably happier. Yes. He was, he was yes. touching the ball where he wanted yes. it, yes. touching it more. But he wants freedom more than anything. Yeah, mm. yeah. doesn't want to Positional be a Positional freedom nine. and mental freedom. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the pragmatism though, City probably will have too much for them, won't they, on Sunday? I think so. They will, and, and well, look, unless Sarri does something a little bit different, I, I think the same thing will happen to Chelsea again. Jorginho will get swamped. The forwards will get isolated. 
and the defence will crack. So he has to do something different. He's got N'Golo Kante, use him. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and what about the midweek game, City's midweek game at Everton? That's a club struggling to come to terms with itself yet again, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think Everton would have a, a serious claim to have had the most disappointing season in the Premier League. I think I think their, their fans are probably the most sort of let down by what's happened. But I have to say, I didn't buy into Marco Silva as the Messiah to start with. I'm also not particularly surprised where they are because the guy hasn't shown enough in his career to suggest he really can build something of real sort of significance and value. They look pretty confused. Set-piece defending's incredibly bad. The signings are a mixed bag. More or less going back to where they were before Sam Allardyce arrived, which is pretty grim. Um, and um, you know, you look at that fixture from a Man City point of view. That that has historically been a really difficult fixture for them. And all you can really see this time round is pain for Everton because you know I don't know what the team that he wants to play is. I don't know how he thinks they should be playing, and I don't know what their command of the basics is supposed to be. It's just not there with what Silva's done so far. Mm. And then, you know, that game is followed by the Marco Silva derby, isn't it, against Watford? <laughs> um, which won't be quiet, I suspect, uh, because of the lingering animosity between the clubs and, and individuals there. Defeat by Watford, a possible tipping point? Well, I don't... I don't I, as far as I'm aware, there is no appetite to change the manager now mm. um, at this stage of the season. Should there be? Well, well, I mean, no, probably not, because what, what's going to happen? Everton aren't going to get relegated. I mean, they're not going to make the top four, so they're just going to, even if you sacked Silver now, there might be a, a, the, the new manager bounce, but it wouldn't be sufficient to get them to anything significant. So I don't, I don't see there's any great advantage to a knee-jerk reaction to what might be an embarrassing run of results. But we're hitting the point where post-match Marco Silva is looking you know, they will have a look, managers mm. who know it's not, they've run out of options yeah. and ideas. I think he thought he was inheriting, when he was appointed, he was inheriting a, a really good team. You know, there was a lot of potential there and he could move on as a young manager with very little experience. Now, oh, now all he needed was a big, relatively big club with expensively assembled players, some real talent, and he'd be off. And it's not worked. And I, I do, I mean, they've conceded 11 in the league, they've conceded 11 goals from set pieces. Mm. And they've got giants at the back. They do. They've got giants. Why can't they? <laughs> There's something very strange going on there. I mean, they've got a goalkeeper that we all thought was fantastic for England at the World Cup. They signed Yeri Mina. I know he's not been fit all the time, but one of the best players at the World Cup. You got to spend £50 million on Richarlison. You got to bring in two players from Barcelona. I mean, my well of sympathy for Marco Silva is pretty dry, I have to say. Mm. It's up to him to, to construct something a little bit more solid. And is he damned by comparison, for instance, with someone like Wolves, where, OK, they've, they've got the same amount of money. They've spent a lot of money on the market. Obviously, there is the Mendes factor involved in that as well. You've got a team which is looking like, it's, it's obviously an abnormal promotion team, it's looking like it could be the next club to break into that top six with a bit more tinkering around the edges on in, during the summer. Wolves have done it properly with a very good manager. What about Everton? Well, it's a really interesting comparison, I think, because um, Wolves and Everton were both taken over at roughly the same time three years ago. 
uh, Wolves have spent in total, their Chinese owners have spent 100 million. Mashiri has spent 360 million. Who's the better team? And you look through, whenever you look through um, a Wolves victory, you look at who our colleagues have, the marks they give. It's like seven out of 10 for every player, or eight out of 10 for every player. And you look at most of the middle in table fighting for recognition clubs, you'll get one or two players that were the stars of the show and then everyone else gets a five out of 10 or something. They've spent that 100 million on building a team that really, really slots together well. Because, you know, you started the season, you thought, oh, well, there's one or two potential stars in that team. But really, really, you know, the rest of them look a bit ordinary. Who are they? They all give everything. They, they knit together so well. And it seems like he can rotate off the bench at will. And you don't almost don't notice the changes because it's so good. Whereas at Everton, you look at the team and there's always at least several players who've dipped so far below what you expect. There's very little pattern to play. Wolves are recognisable as um, as an outfit. I, I actually found myself laughing out loud when I watched them because of their cross-field yeah, passing. Yeah. There it goes. There it goes. <laughs> it's, 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 it, and, and you think, well, I know it's coming and it's quite funny because it's coming, but the opposition never seemed to know when yeah. it's coming. Uh, really impressive manager, doesn't say too much, just lets his, the football do the talking. It's a very nasty comparison from Everton's point of view, I would say. Yeah, we're nice normally, but mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what about, you know, you, you, Ali spoke about investment there, yeah. which begs the question about Tottenham. They've not spent a shiny penny the entire season. Are we seeing a business plan justified or are we seeing a coach going above and beyond the call of duty? Well, we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're seeing a coach in a way, I'm not bailing out, because look, Tottenham moving into a new stadium is unbelievable for the club long term and Daniel Levy extracts every ounce that he can out of, of his part of the business but he's got a manager that is also extracting every ounce that, that he does and Poch is allowing this transition for the club to happen while still maintaining upward progress and that's an incredible feat of management I mean he, he's, he's probably manager of the year at the moment and if Klopp wins the title fine but if he doesn't, it's got to be Pochettino. Incredible. He's added things you know, month by month to that team without actually being able to add players. He's coached. He's got different ways of winning games now. I watched them at the weekend. and Similar game to City versus Newcastle. Newcastle were brilliant defensively, really rigidly organised. Tottenham must have tried 25 different things and eventually came up with long ball to Lorente chest down to little strike I mean went right back to the 1980s with the playbook but I love that that's a that's a coach that is thinking all the time thinking on his feet and he's put a, a mentality into the team that that wasn't there before um, it's not a winning mentality is it? <laughs> <laughs> well it's not a Carabao Cup winning mentality is it and that means he's terrible I mean it, it's ludicrous isn't it Ali? I know you covered Spurs a lot and and you'll see the mentality you'll see the the mental strength they've got because they shouldn't be where they are. Well, it's interesting, and there's a hat tip here to, to Daniel Storey, our colleague. He said, Tottenham's wage bill is 148 million euros. You could double the wages of every Tottenham player, sign seven new players on 100,000 pounds a week, and still have a lower wage bill than Manchester mm -hmm. City. Does that sum it up? Well, I mean, Daniel Levy is now doing little jigs. Woohoo. <laughs> Of course, that's a model that needs a lot of praise and speaks of a very well-run club and a tight ship with a new stadium around the corner. It's organised well. I really believe 
that occasionally splashing money on a marquee signing mm -hmm. does wonders for making a group of players feel just insecure enough to try that little bit harder. And bringing in a player who's won something recently might also help as well. Because I, whilst we sit here and you're very eloquent about what a wonderful manager mm. Pochettino is, I think most Spurs fans would rather he was slightly less wonderful and mm -hmm. praised by us and was actually delivering that moment where you were all watching the glittering trophy in the sunshine. And I find him frustrating when they're on the brink of being close to a final or the semi-final stages of a competition. He always pulls back and says it doesn't matter. Well, they've won more Premier League games than anyone else this season, jointly with City and But where's the glittering Liverpool. trophy moment? Mm. Yeah, I, get, I, I, I get that. The game's about glory. I've seen that somewhere before. No, I, I, I do get that, and, and, and I think it would help them enormously to win a trophy, but I don't think it's reasonable to expect them to win a trophy. You're not a Spurs fan, are you? I'm not a Spurs well, fan. Well, then it's easy for you to say that. And it is easy for me to say. But because it is, on a purist level, it's lovely. It's absolutely lovely yeah. to watch Spurs do what they do on those amazing statistics with their wage bill and knowing that they've invested so much money in a new stadium and there's more to come. Mm. I just, mm. looking at it from the fans' point of view, it must be so frustrating. You're, you're off to Dortmund later in the yeah. week, Johnny. Obviously, we've got the Champions League tie next week. How prepared are Spurs? Is this the sort of arena that the cracks might show? Yes, it is. And, you know, I guess going back to what we're talking about, how can they possibly maintain the intensity of performance in the Premier League with that small squad if they're going all out in other competitions, which I think is what we saw in the, in the Cups, which is probably why they're out of them. And that may undo them against Dortmund. I think it'd be really, really difficult against a, a team with Dortmund's pace, intensity, with the sort of shallow squad they've got to, to win that game and do what they're doing in the Premier League. I think Poch has clearly prioritised as he's told us, the, the the league, and I I don't think he can I don't think he can he can do more than that. I don't think the resources are there to to win other competitions. I accept Ali's point about how fans might wish otherwise. I'm not a Tottenham fan, but just looking at it in terms of a manager marshalling his resources, saying this is the most important competition. I think he's right. Out of the four, it is. I don't have any complaints, and I don't think the Dortmund. Result and it'll be a fantastic tie, by the way. Fantastic tie. I think Dortmund are probably favourites, but that won't change my thinking about Poch. Mm. They're at uh, the next league games at uh, home to Leicester. They've lost three times the last three games at home. Yet more rumblings about Claude Puel. What's your view of the way that will unfold up there? Uh, I would put money on Puel not being there at the end of the season, regardless of what he achieves. There's enormous player power at Leicester, really is. Their reward as a group of players for winning that very unlikely title was they're just treated like little, little gods. And if they get cross with a certain manager, then it's allowed to permeate upwards and that's the end of it. Probably don't know about me. Yeah. That's, I mean, I've heard that from so many sources, I can't believe it isn't true. And you, you, I mean, you can bear me out here, can't you? They, no. they, would you say you no, wouldn't bear me out? I think we're going to disagree again, Ali, I'm really? sorry. Really? You don't think there's player power at Leicester? No, I do think there is. I think there is there's a particular player who's got a lot of power, but I, I don't think, uh, I think beyond one one. I don't think beyond that, they, this group are... I don't, look, I don't think that's a problem for Puel. I think it is a problem. Is he his own worst enemy? You know, yes. I couldn't believe it when he when he took 
Madison off, for instance. Well, what I was going to say was uh, one of his big issues is how he's standing with supporters. And, and for him, it's Southampton all over again. And the Madison substitution... Made no sense was, whatsoever. Was almost... But Madison was limping in the first half. It was very effective. It's one of those, though, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's the best player. He's the, he's the most creative player. And he's, he's the, the player that the fans... So do you believe that because the, the, the supporters haven't fallen in love with Puel, that's why he'll go in the summer, not because there's player power? Yeah, I think that'll be part of it. I think he's probably hasn't 100% convinced the owners, obviously, and there's a group of players, but they're, they're a very, very ambitious club. Um, and I think they will have expected him to do a little bit better than he's done. That might seem unreasonable from the outside. We might say it's only Leicester, but the way the owners who, who thought they could win the league, thought they could get in the Champions League and did, are looking at it is that they should be pushing a bit higher than they are. So you don't think he'll be there after this? I don't think he'll be there. I think he's, look, I think he's done a really good job in transitioning the club towards younger players and giving them a little bit of breadth to their game. They can play better possession football now. But... As I spoke to Michael Appleton about this last week, the fact remains is they're still better playing the old Leicester and they still haven't quite got to the point where they've replaced those players and he's had two years to do so and, and, and quite a lot of recruitment. And I think the Mooners will say, right, it's time to to move on and do something different. There'll be some big names in for that job when it becomes Viking. Yeah, because yeah. Leicester's been looked on by that echelon of managers who think they should be at the top end of the Premier League as being one of the clubs, one of the jobs they could take. If you're not going to get a big six job, but you want to sort of push towards the top of the table and compete for stuff, I think you're looking at Leicester. You may be, may be looking at West Ham with a fair wind, but with all that entails. And, you know, Wolves is a different model. So I think it's enormously attractive to... And Everton's another one that managers would look at. But I think Leicester's really attractive to people like Brendan Rodgers. To you know, if Rafa Benitez became available, I think he'd look at it. And I, but I think don't think they'd be alone. I think there'd be a lot of ambitious managers thinking I could do something. There's a new training ground, hundred million pound training ground coming, and they'll keep spending money. And they've got some very good young players. And that's my Leicester brochure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you know, that brochure was looked at by Manchester United the weekend. They walked away quite happy. <laughs> 28 points out of 30 for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Are we going to find out his true metal in February? Because if you look at their, their fixture lists, you've got um, obviously the Champions League tie against PSG. Then you've got four away games at Fulham, Chelsea, Liverpool and Palace. At the end of that lot, is it time to take stock about where Man United should go with their manager? It's turning out to be February's the month, isn't it, for everybody, really? I, unless it's an absolute disaster in every game, I, I think Solskjaer's already proved he's done enough because although the fixtures have been relatively easy, I think he's had the hard part with everyone really being quite ripped about him, I think. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a, a Man United legend who has more songs about him than any other any other of their former players I think it's partly because he's Norwegian and partly because he came to Cardiff and failed I think people were actually sniggering and saying well thank goodness it's just you know an interim appointment before we get somebody glamorous in I think to do what he's done with that background of sniggering has been quite phenomenal and I think he already deserves for them to be seriously considering asking him if he'd like to take the job full-time because if we were sniggering not me personally but if the media was sniggering 
imagine what the dressing room might have been yeah. like. It's not enough to, for the, to assume that the players thought, well, thank goodness Mourinho's gone with his acerbic lack of wit mm. and someone's come in who smiles a lot. They, he still had to convince them that the way he wanted to run the club, run the team, run training was worth them buying into. And he's, he's done that. I'm really impressed with his humility as well. I love the way in every match, every time you look at the bench, it's very collegiate. He, he's constantly taking advice from Mike Phelan and, mm. and uh, Carrick. He's, and they celebrate as a unit. He will always say, oh, you know, this isn't my story, it's the team's story. I like everything about what he's doing. And I would, I would give him room to lose a couple of those games, actually, because I, I really don't think they would lose any of them badly or without mm. spirit. Yeah. Mm. With the PSG game, when that draw was made, you looked at it and thought, well, there's no way United are going to go through from that. Now, really good game last night. PSG lost 2-1 mm -hmm. at Lyon. Uh, Thomas Tuchel's not been happy with <laughs> the January transfer window. And of course, he will say, won't he, that being without Neymar is survivable. Um, <laughs> that could be the moment, couldn't it? Where you know a club which likes to associate itself with great European nights, if they overcome PSG, he's got to get the job. It becomes pretty unarguable, although, you know, I've, I've, I've given the advert for Poch earlier on and if he really is available, then that's a serious thing you've got to think about, no matter how well Solskjaer's doing. But I totally agree with Ali on, on, on what he's shown as a coach. I think, you know, just look at the goal they scored against Leicester. He's got Pogba passing to Rashford goal. We've seen that about eight, eight times already. That's coaching. I don't know what we want out of him. Oh, he's only smiling and making everyone happy. No, he's, he's coaching. He's, he's changed those two players' positions. He's got a pattern of play that works for them now, mm. that counter-attack, and he's getting stuff out of it. And is it also, you've got to look beyond the obvious success stories, you know, Pogba and Rashford, yeah. to people like Lindelof? Lindelof, great. great people example. were laughing at him. Well, I was among those laughing at him. I, I thought he just looked too weak and slow for the Premier League and that, that looks like it's rubbish now. He's just been focused properly on, on, on what he's very good at doing, which is defending his box. Again, it's coaching. He's playing a deliberate game to get bodies in the box and, and hold it and, and, and then counter-attack. He's coming up with stuff that really works for the team. Lindelof's a great example, but Ashley Young, Shaw, and then it's either Bailly or Jones or Smalling, but he's, he's actually got a solid back four now. Mourinho was ch chopping and changing that all the time. Didn't know what he was doing. Herrera and, and um, Matic in front of that, again, that's an area of the pitch where Mourinho kept changing things. So Solskjaer's very quickly identified what works for United. And I think they're really dangerous opponents for PSG because they are a team that's, that's vulnerable to the counter-attack, has been for years. We've seen it year after year in the Champions League and it didn't, hasn't changed under Tuchel. Leon are a very good counter-attacking team. So there's no pressure on United. It's, it's a really, really good tie for Solskjaer. Mm. Let's look at uh, relegation as we uh, come towards the end. You saw Huddersfield on Saturday, Ali. I'm guessing that you probably conform to the general view that they're done. Mm. Fulham the same? Hmm. Uh, uh, probably, yes. It pains me to say it because they're still entertaining Fulham and they can still pull beautiful moments out of the bag and they have a lot of players that are really nice to watch. I mean, with Huddersfield, it's just basically Aaron Moy when he's in the hmm. mood is good to watch. Fulham have lots that's nice about them. I think the signing of Ryan Babel was a good signing. He just hit the ground running. He's brought 
a bit of maturity and experience to the team, eagerness to get stuck in. But yes, I think I think if they'd signed in January a really experienced defender called Gary Cahill, <laughs> that I, I, I might say they could just maybe just just maybe scrape through if, they, if got, they got lucky with other results. But they're still very porous, very very porous, and very poor away from home. And I just don't see the collapses coming from elsewhere that would be required to keep them up. But I hope they keep entertaining on the way down. Mm. What about Cardiff? Mm. Um, they're the logical third team, but with Warnock around, you never quite know, do you? You don't. I think they're dangerous for the others because they are they're getting those wins. They're still in there. They're really good at home. And Warnock will not overcomplicate things in pursuit of those points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And be interesting because they're, they're at Southampton at the yeah, weekend. Yeah, well, that, that's, that, that is a real, you know, for Hassan Hüttel, adapting to English football, trying to impose that high-pressing game against a team that whacks it as hard and high as Cardiff do, then that's going to be a real test for him. I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't discount them at all. And, you know, that would be almost the crowning achievement of Warnock's career to keep that team up because mm. in terms of oh, ability... Yeah. You know, but, if he, but if he did kick them up, will you still say he would not be manager of the season over Poch? Do you no, I, I, I'd rather reward. I, I know what you're saying, but I'd rather reward positivity and uh, you know a positive achievement rather than survival. Really, if Jan Seaworth kept Huddersfield up from where they are, <laughs> maybe. But um, I, no, I, I think Poch has built something, and but I'd really admire what Warnock's done if he does keep them up. Right. Some um, questions from the listeners and viewers. The first one is raises some quite profound issues. It's from Lucian Oakle from Australia. Uh, if Bahrain flagrantly breach FIFA human rights commitment, can Sheikh bin Salman even consider becoming FIFA president? I think let's look at the wider issue begged by that question, which is, you know, it's confirming the case of the refugee footballer Hakim El Arabi. Um, Craig Foster, who is supporting him, saying this is an issue which is a battle for the soul of the sport. That he wants and the supporters want FIFA and UEFA to impose sporting sanctions. Um, you know, just to fill in on the gaps, um, Hakim has today been given uh, 60 days to prepare a defence against Bahrain's attempt to extradite him from Thailand, where he was arrested while on honeymoon. It's a case which has got huge popular support. There were 14 nations represented in court in Thailand today. What does it tell us about the power of football to highlight these very important issues? Well, it, it tells us that football, whether it likes it or not, has got a responsibility, I guess, when it comes to trying to give a world which has lost the moral compass something. Whether football should have that responsibility is another matter, but it does bring things like this into focus for so many people who wouldn't otherwise think of them. And I really hope that there's a change at the AFC, the Asian Football Conference, that they throw their weight behind freeing Al-Arabi because they, they, they've sort of fenced that and been very weak on it so far, despite Australia, Jordan and other nations urging them to do so. And there are political reasons for that. Um, that might have also something to do with money, and that's where you get into, you know, the horrible conflict and, and compromising that football has to do. But I, I think this is a, a, an individual who could be saved if FIFA, as well with the AFC, can 
actually apply the right pressure, it's not quite doing it at the moment and it's been left to people like Craig Foster and Australia individually to try and act and it doesn't look like it's going to be enough at the moment the way that the case has gone. Mm. Well, the, good, the good news, if you like, is that there are now a whole wealth of people who would not know very much about yeah. the way Thailand operates when it comes to extradition mm -hmm. and their views on dealing with other nations. Mm -hmm. This wouldn't know, but because they like football and they might click yeah. on a story about refugee footballer in chains, what's that about? You then know more about the socio-economic, political elements of the world that you mm. wouldn't normally... That, that, I mean, mm. they're not very sexy often, are they? What's more politically going on in the, Bahrain? But, but, but we hear a lot about things like the football family. Well, this is surely a case in point where the football family should get together and protect one of its own. Well, they are. Well, yeah. I think they are. Well, I don't think they I, I think some are and some aren't, as, but, I, as I understand yeah, 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 it. Yeah. You're right. I mean, it's football that draws us into looking at these things, and, and that's, that's great. But then we start to look at what football's doing and get confused again and see more politics where... You know, football's got a, it's got a power, but it's got a responsibility and it doesn't well, get it right. I do think that well, at least the world is watching. So I can, yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Back to football. Um, Michael Murphy, uh, we've almost answered this question, but is there any manager you prefer to having your teams dug out for a must win game and needing to find a winner in the dying minutes than Poch? He seems to imbue his team with extraordinary character, resilience and belief to wring every last bit of effort out of them. Well, he is. And, 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 and I, I, I actually wrote that. No, um, I'd actually choose Oli Gunnar though, because he's clearly channeling Alex Ferguson from, from, from some sort of power source. And um, he would produce a last minute comeback. Yeah, you've dwelt on this next one, uh, uh, tangentially at least, Sean Murray. Admittedly, there are, there are a litany of problems at Everton, but how much longer will they persevere with Michael Keane? No pace at all, terrible positional sense and an unbelievable amount of mistakes for a player who costs £30 million. Yeah, no, bless him, he just doesn't look like a £30 million player at all. And this is part of the legacy of the Cooman era. Let's not forget mm. a lot of what Everton are struggling with now is they felt very blessed to have had appointed a manager of the aura and stature of Ronald Koeman, who just mucked it up there completely. And one of the signings he mucked up was Keane. Fine. Phil Parkinson, I assume it's not the Phil Parkinson, uh, is now a good time to revisit Mourinho's comments on youth player development? In other words, they're all <laughs> soft. They're all soft, yeah, and, and uh, they're not good enough and blah, blah, blah. Yes, it probably is. I mean, not just... Yeah, I think he's talking about the berating of, in particular of Luke Shaw, but also questioning Martial and Rashford and, and Lingard and Pogba, of course, who's certainly young at heart, the way he plays. <laughs> uh, and, and they're now the, the backbone of a, of a great Solskjaer, you know, uprising or whatever. And it just shows that if you believe in them and, and motivate them and actually give them the right roles on the pitch, then maybe they're not as soft as you think. OK. And a final one from Sukbir Tiwana. How terrible is Sanchez? Straight to the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think Solskjaer tried to defend him and didn't actually succeed very well in doing so. Because I would say right now, of all the managers who are least likely to slaughter any of their individuals is Solskjaer. And if he can't come up with a good reason why, why he'd had a good game. Yeah, I remember. I, we've, all seen, we've all seen him play beautifully. Mm. It's, I don't know what's going on there because... 
this is his moment, isn't it? New manager, chance to shake off all the mistakes he's made in his transfer choices and realise he's at a very big, good club, mm. one that he, where he could shine. It's not happened to him yet. Yeah. But I suppose it begs the final question, which we'll wrap up with. You've got players like Sanchez, Ozil, Danny Drinkwater with a degree, sitting on huge contracts. Why should they be bothered? Some of them are, some of them aren't. I think Sanchez is bothered. You see by his face when he came off, mm. it just hadn't worked for him again. Are the other two bothered? I'm not quite so sure. And look, they should be bothered because it's supporters' money that is going in their pockets and they've got a responsibility to give everything for the shirt, haven't they? And they can change history if they do the right yeah. thing. Like if Gary Cahill had gone to Fulham yeah. in the transfer window, he might have changed history. Well, let's be honest. If you're being paid nearly £2 million a month, why would you walk away from that? It's mad, bad, but it's football. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.